Let me ask a question as we get into our lesson. How many of you have heard the term preacher count? Have you heard that before, preacher count? Which usually means it's nothing like the true number, right? It's an exaggeration. You know, if 100 people are present, they'll say it was 125. If there's 500 present, they'll guess that there's 650. Kind of like fishermen always exaggerating the size of the fish. Preachers exaggerate the size of the crowd. I've always wondered about that because I'm so not good at that. People ask me sometimes the crowd, and I'll think it was a good one, and I look at the numbers, and I'm off. And so I don't have that gift or that curse or, or whatever it is. But there's something about seeing a crowd that makes us feel good. Even like you go to a restaurant, and you, know, you see the parking lot's full, maybe a, a line out the door. You might think, oh, we've got to wait. But it also tells you it's a good restaurant. People want to go there. You know, or you go to a sporting event, and instead of it being just a few dedicated fans, the place is packed. And there's something great about that feeling when the stadium or the Coliseum is just so full and the energy, because we can't help but be affected by a good crowd. We love it when there's a house full. So even in a church, we like it when there is a house full. I put this statement on the top of your outline if you've got that open in your um, bulletin. Jesus never gauged success by a large crowd. And that amazes me. But it's true. Jesus never gauged success by large crowds. As you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that. Whenever he had these large crowds, and that was often, inevitably, Jesus had a way of sharing something that was uncomfortable. Some truth that was hard to hear. So instead of saying things that would make the crowd want to come back... Instead, he would share this uncomfortable truth, and sometimes it caused them to leave. And they didn't come back. Let me give an example. There's a lot of examples, but one is Luke 14. I put it on the screen, verses 25 through 27. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, Now, you would think it would be something to keep them coming back, right? But notice what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's basically saying, if I'm not so far ahead of all these other relationships by comparison, then just go back home. Don't, don't even bother to call yourself a follower. Keep reading. Look at verse 27. He keeps going. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to bear the cross... Then don't call yourself a Christian is what he's saying. Wow, strong words. But that's not unusual. When the crowds would come, Jesus would share something that was uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, uncomfortable to hear. Now, he was never unkind. He was never rude. But he was rather blunt at times. In essence, what he's saying here and other times too, if I'm just one of many, don't bother if you're trying to decide whether to go to the big event or come to worship on the weekend, well, just go to the event because you're not really a follower of mine anyway that you're thinking that way. I wonder sometimes when these crowds were gathered and the, the, the disciples had to notice, wow, these are great crowds. If, when Jesus made one of these statements, if they just cringed and thinking, well, you're going to run the crowds away. You know, if there's somebody thinking, why is he talking about that today? I brought my friend, and now he said that. They'll never come back. You ever felt that way before? Yet, as you read through the Gospels, I can't help but notice, you've noticed it too. Jesus is not enamored by the crowds. 
These great crowds, the Bible says, came together. And he's not sensitive to the fact that the people might be bothered or uncomfortable with his words. I thought about that and I thought, you know, I wonder if I'm a little too concerned about numbers. Sometimes I will say often, I'll say, hey, glad you're here today. We got a great crowd. I mean, it is a great crowd or a good crowd. But what if the number is off? Does that mean it's a bad crowd? It's like, oh, I'm glad you're here today because it's still a bad. You don't say that. But is that what we're refer, inferring by our words? Now, I think it's only human, though. It's just kind of part of us. You know, we see people we know and love. We're glad to see them, you know, and especially if there's lots of them. There's a good feeling that comes with that. But only when it's their choice. Not when they're forced to come. Not when their heart is not in it. If we're not careful, we can cheapen everything. See, what we think is great, we want other people to think is great. We want others and everyone to think that is also wonderful and great and them to be as excited about it as we are. But we don't ever want to come across as begging. You know, that's not our intention. Think about it this way. I've got two daughters. Both of them are grown. But just for an example, I mean, both of them are married and grown. Um, But they're both married. But this is a one of them is not. And she just finished college, but she really wants to be married. And I think, I'm her dad. I'm going to help her. And so I take out an ad in the paper. Do they still do that? Do people read those? You know, I put maybe something on social media. I put a placard on the side of the cars or maybe put it on the back of the sticker. You know, if you can do that for a kidney, you can do that for, you know, say, hey, I've got a great daughter. You know, maybe put in something into the kitty to make it enticing and try to get people. I would never do that, Right? Because I would want whoever chooses my daughter to choose my daughter, to be worthy. And there's no such thing, so then I have to go down. No, I'm just kidding. But you know the point. We wouldn't do that because it cheapens it. We don't want to come across as begging. And I thought about that, you know. I really hope I've not cheapened Jesus ever with any words I've said that makes it sound like I'm begging people to come to church or to believe in him. And if I've ever done that, that makes you feel like you're doing God a favor because you showed up at church, I need to apologize because that's, that's not the way it should be. Sometimes people will even say, speakers will say, and maybe at times I've said, thank you for being here. I don't say that anymore. I haven't in a long time, if I ever did. But I still hear people say that sometimes at church. I'm like, I don't know that we need to be thanked for coming to worship. Instead, what I want to do in our lesson today, and if you look in the study guide, you can see we're going to share, like Jesus did, some uncomfortable truths. Because we want to teach what the Bible teaches and believe what the Bible believes and encourage each other to obey what the Bible says. And sometimes that's comfortable and sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's accepted by the, the world and it's popular. And sometimes it's not accepted. It's not popular. But it doesn't matter. What the Bible says, the Bible says. And we want to teach that. And we want to believe that. We want to obey that. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11. That's going to be our lesson from today. It's a story of the resurrection, not of Jesus, but of Lazarus. You may be familiar with the story of Lazarus, his good friend. The, the story opens like this. John 11. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now a certain man was ill 
Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Lazarus is on his deathbed. His days are numbered. They've done everything they could do. And so now it's just a matter of time. Jesus is going to die. But they know Jesus is their friend. Jesus loves Lazarus. He would be concerned about this. They send word. Don't even use his name. The one whom you love is ill. And here's the truth for Lazarus. Lazarus needed to be saved. So if you're filling the blanks, here's the first uncomfortable truth. We need to be saved. We need to be saved. Now, I don't think we always think of ourselves in that way. I mean, when life is good, when relationships are good, when we're healthy, when, when things are, sun is shining, we don't feel like we're lost or we don't feel like we need saving. We don't even feel like we need God that much because things are going so well. But what we know is that life is not always sunshine. And sometimes the storm comes when we least expect it. Life is much more than things working out perfectly. Imagine you're out in a boat and a storm comes up and the waves are so intense that finally they overtake the boat and you're thrown out into the water. And you think, hey, I've got to do something. And you remember you've got a cell phone. You pull it out and to your amazement it works. Even more so, you've got a signal. And you're thinking, but wait, I'm down to the last battery. Maybe I can make one call. Who are you going to call at that point? You're thinking, you know, I'm going to be treading water for a while. You're going to order food because you might get hungry. You're going to call your boss and say, I may not make it Monday. Kind of in a pickle. No, you're going to call somebody who can save you. Somebody who can help you because the truth is we need to be saved. See, in the church, we can talk about relationships. We can talk about finances. We can talk about uh, making the right choices that put us on the right path. And all those are good because the Bible talks about all of those things. But the overall message of Scripture is being saved. So we don't talk about all those other things if we're drowning. We need to know how are we to be saved. Romans 3.23, Paul wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's one thing every one of us have in common. All of us are sinners. All of us. A couple of chapters later, chapter 6, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So all of us are sinners, and what we deserve is death. Now, he's not just talking about dying physical death here, because everybody does that, not just because of your sin. Everybody dies. This is more than that. This is eternal separation from God that he's talking about. This is actually a more comfortable way of saying hell. That's what he's inferring here. All of us have sinned, and what we deserve because of our sin is to spend eternity in hell. That's the truth. And the Bible says that hell is a horrible place. It's a place of outer darkness, incredible loneliness. Jesus says it's a place where the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. And the truth is, unless we're saved from our sin, that's our future. That's where we'll go. Now, I know a lot of people don't believe this. A lot of people don't want to think about this. They don't want to think about it at all. They don't want to talk about it. Because here's the reason. The hardest truth for us to believe is the truth we don't like. The hardest truth for us to believe is the truth we don't like. Let me show you what I mean by that. 
You ever been eating something that you know is not necessarily healthy, but oh, you're enjoying it? I'm thinking like a, like a hot dog. You know, a delicious hot dog just the way you like it. And you're about halfway through that heavenly treat. And your friend asks you the question. Do you know the question? Do you know what's in that? You ever been asked that kind of question? I should say your former friend because they're not your friend anymore. Because you are enjoying that deliciousness in the bun, right? And the last thing you want to do is talk about the health benefits, or lack thereof, of what you're eating. The hardest truth to accept is the one you don't like. Some will say, I believe in God, but I believe in a God who's not going to send people to hell. That's not the God I believe in. You can believe in a God like that, but according to the Bible, that's the God you're making up in your own imagination. Because the God of the Bible talks about hell. He's spoken very clearly that all have sinned. And all of those who have sinned are going to die. We need to be saved. So that's the first one. Well, here's another uncomfortable truth. We can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. If you ask the average person who thinks they're going to heaven, are you going to heaven and ask them why, Somewhere in their answer, what's going to come out, and they may choose their own wording, but basically because they're a good person. Here's the things that I do well. And maybe you have done some good things, and I would say good for you, but there's never any one of us who's done enough good. You're never good enough. We can't save ourselves. That's the truth of Scripture. When guy told about his chemistry teacher giving a big test at the end of the year. It was a very demanding class to begin with, and this test was going to be a monster of a final. I mean, everybody in the class, even the best students, was dreading this, just wondering, hoping, thinking, how can we do well on this? And so they all studied very hard, and they showed up for the final, and sure enough, as the teacher, the teacher passed it out, this test was, it was a beast, just multiple pages and all of them, their heart just sunk because they knew there was no way anybody was going to do well. We're doomed. They all thought. And the teacher said this. I want you to read through every word before you start taking the test. And so they did that. On the very last page at the bottom, this was the message. You can try your best to get an A by taking this test. Or you can just put your name on it and automatically receive an A. Hard decision, right? I'll take choice B. And so many students who had tried so hard to study and prepare were so relieved. Oh, my. Wrote their name on the top, turned it in, got their A. They were so happy. But there was that one student. There's always the one student, right? That one student who, if they ever needed that free A, this one did, didn't read. Didn't notice everybody else getting up so quickly. Patrick just went through the test all by himself. But there was another student. This was a girl. Her mom was the other science teacher in the school. And when she saw this happening, she thought, this is not right. A teacher should not just give an A. Not a good teacher anyway. And so she decided, I'm going to take the test just on principle. And I'm going to earn my own A. And so that's what she did. 
think we can be like that. Jesus, you're good. You're offering me this amazing grace, but I think I got it. I think I can do this myself. I can get this, get in on my own. Yes, you are a good person. I say, yes, you do some nice things for people. I think all of us have our good moments, but the reality is nobody is good enough to save yourself. Maybe that kind of thinking goes way back to your youth when you, in your young, immature way of looking at Scripture, hearing about God, what you developed was a theology that if you just made all the right decisions, made all the right choices, did everything right, then you'd get to go to heaven. So that's why you're at church all the time. You know, that's why you give 10% of your income. That's why you don't drink. That's why you don't smoke. That's why you don't cuss. Because you've got to do everything right to earn your way in. But maybe you've been good. Again, nobody is good enough. We can't save ourselves. That's the truth. So Jesus, here's this message. Lazarus, the one he loves, is dying. As John writes the story here, he tells us that Jesus waits two days before he even leaves to, to, to travel toward Bethany. In fact, when he arrives in the village, Lazarus has been dead in the grave for four days. And the scene there, as John describes it, is just heartbreaking. Mary and Martha are so upset, but not just them. So many others are mourning and weeping over the death of Lazarus. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Martha does what we do. She plays the blame game. If you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She believes in Jesus, but at the moment, she's not happy with him. Lord, if you had been here, then think about that question. In fact, think about in your own life, how would you fill in that blank? Lord, if you had only what? What was it for you? Because no doubt all of us have had a moment in time where we pleaded with God about something. We wanted God to intervene. And we had that same thought, if only you had been here. See, here's an uncomfortable truth. Just like Martha, we feel like God let us down. We feel like following Jesus should be a little bit easier than others. That we should be protected from some of these heartbreaks. Look on the screen. Here's our next uncomfortable truth. Sometimes Jesus doesn't save us the way we think he should. Sometimes Jesus doesn't save us the way we think he should. Maybe it's just our humanness, but we're so focused on this side of the grave. So many details and things that we're so absorbed with that we want God to do things for us here. And now, and so as we plead our hearts to God, we ask God to be there for us, to intervene for us, to do for us. And so when he doesn't, we've got to deal with that. How do you deal with that disappointment? And what would it be for you? Jesus, if only you would have, maybe it goes back to your childhood, kept my parents together. If only you had done that. Or maybe Jesus, if only you'd given us a child. If those 
test results would have come back with good news. If I would have gotten that job, if you would have sent me a spouse or, or kept my marriage together, if only, you, you fill in the blank, all of us have been through that at times. And when he's not there, like Martha, we feel like he's let us down. But Martha's not the only one feeling this way. Others as well. Look at verse 37. The Jews are talking among themselves, verse 37, but some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? See, they understood the power of Jesus. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he show up? Where was he? Couldn't he have done something? Maybe you've had some of those moments. If God can, then why didn't he? And how do you answer that? How do you deal with that? Maybe for you it was just last year and it's fresh on your mind. Or maybe it was 20, 30 years ago, but it's still there. Maybe you still believe in Jesus. Maybe you're still coming to church, but some days it's just going through the motions. Life happens. And you think, this isn't what I've signed up for. But now the flip side of that coin is that there are times where it seems like, oh my, God just saved the day. You know, and we're so quick to say, thank you for that. You ever been through, like, again, a medical situation where maybe you weren't expecting this, this procedure or whatever, and then the bill comes, and you're not sure what the hospital's going to charge or the surgeon's going to charge or the anesthesia's going to charge or all their friends who said they were there and sent you a bill are going to charge? You know what I'm talking about? How much is insurance going to pay? So you don't even open the envelope, you know? Because you're, you're, you're concerned about that. Maybe it's kind of a one-eyed, as you open it, and then, wow, it's not that much. You can pay the bill. Thank you, Jesus. He saved the day. Or maybe it's at work and your situation, maybe a deadline is coming, and, and there's no way you can work 24, hour, 24 hours a day for the next five days at work, and you're not going to pull it off, and then your coworker gets sick. Can't, you're doomed. You go to work just thinking, there is no way. And then somehow your boss just out of the blue says, oh, the deadline's been extended a week. God saved the day. So there are times where we just look and say, God saved us the way we want him to, the way we need him to. And we're looking for that and we praise him for that. So we've got all these ideas of what we think Jesus for, should do for us. But more often than not, they're about stuff here. Temporary stuff. Earthly stuff. It's like we can't help but be focused on this stuff. But his salvation is much more than, than just this stuff. Look what he says next in verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So... You get the idea with Martha's response that Jesus is just saying some pleasantries, some nice things you say when people are going through grief. The things you and I say when somebody we you know, care about, they're at the funeral home, and you say things like, well, they're in a better place, or they've received their reward, and we mean well with these things. And so Martha's response, to me, kind of reads that way. Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know we will rise again, the resurrection on the last day. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 25. 
Jesus said to her, here's the key verse, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, with this claim in verse 25, what he is saying, with all these I am statements in the Gospel of John, and by the way, I hope you know this as you study the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel of John is a great book to study. If you ever just on your own uh, want to know more about Jesus for yourself, read through, study through the Gospel of John. You've got a good friend that wants to know, uh, maybe begin reading the Bible. Where do you begin? The Gospel of John is a great book. Maybe mark it in your Bible or put an asterisk. I heard one time a good book to read. What was it? It's the Gospel of John. Because John has an amazing way as he writes the Gospel of just helping each person who will read it see who Jesus is. He does a masterful job. And again here he records this happening. Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm not just a great teacher, not just another prophet, not just telling you the truth. I'm God in the flesh. He says the statement, I am the life. The Bible teaches from beginning to end, but he reiterates here, everything you need for true life is in him. And that's so contrary to the message that we can't help but hear from our world. That if you want to make it, if you want to be happy, if you want to be content, if you want to be successful, then it is all about being successful and accomplishments. Our pleasure, our possessions, all this stuff that just takes our energies and we become consumed with them. We spend so much of our lives chasing after what we think is life. Let me give you a couple of examples. Look at the screen. I just put a collage here of some things and you could add others. Even at an early age, we think, if I could just make the team, right? And then you make the team, you say, if I could just win the tournament and get that trophy... Or maybe for you, it's doing something you've never done before, and you sign up to take piano lessons. And you do that recital by yourself in front of all those strangers. You know, to a child, that's a big deal, a big accomplishment. Or maybe for you, it's making the grade. You get that report card. Or maybe you graduate from high school. Or you get into college, you get accepted. Or maybe you marry the man of your dreams. Or after being married a while, you, you buy your, your dream house by yourself, living independently but what we know with all these things, as wonderful they are at the moment, after a while you realize that you look back on that team that you made and you think, I think everybody made the team. There were ten who tried out and ten made it. Or you buy that house and then the air conditioner breaks. You think, wait a minute, so much for home ownership. Now I got to, you know what I'm saying? All these things that we thought was going to be life, now it's like there's got to be more to it than that. And inevitably you feel disappointed. Or even look at other people who seem to be successful, or they seem to be happy, or they seem to have some slice of life that you don't have. You think, what is it about them? Because they seem to have this life. Tom Brady was on 60 Moments a couple of years ago, just before yet another Super Bowl. And he said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? This is what he says. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. 
And he's right. And all of us, whatever it is we were chasing, sometimes we look back and think it's an empty, just plastic trophy. It's more to it. There's got to be more to it than that. Jesus makes it very clear you can't find life apart from me. A lot of substitutes, and we can spend our time chasing all of these, but that's not where true life is. And he makes that statement, I am the resurrection. I'm the resurrection. I'm the only one that gives eternal life. I'm the only one that gives salvation. I've got the keys of death, is what he's saying here. And he asked Martha directly, do you believe this? So let me ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I'm not asking if your parents believe. I'm not asking if you grew up going to church or your grandparents. I'm, do you believe this? In verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus walks over to the tomb. He said, take away the stone. The stone is removed in verse 43. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that what was once a dead man becomes an alive man. But he's still wrapped in graves clothes. His hands feed his hands. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go in verse 44. The funeral turns into a party. It's an amazing change. The mourning and weeping turns into a celebration. And Jesus answers the most important question that we will ever ask. Who's going to save me? Jesus says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will never die. And that leads to the last uncomfortable truth. Jesus alone can save I could have just written Jesus saves, and that's true. But the uncomfortable truth is Jesus only. He's the only one that can save. And it's uncomfortable because it seems so exclusive. But I would say what you've heard others say, you show me someone who's walked out of their own grave and we'll listen to him. Because that's what Jesus did. When he walked out of his own grave, he said, I've got the keys of death. That's why he could say, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus alone makes that claim of salvation. And that's, that's the good news to celebrate. We need to be saved. We can save ourselves. Jesus can. See, the truth is, and this is uncomfortable too. We don't like to talk about this. We're all going to die one day. We're all going to die one day. We don't have to get the notices from the funeral home saying, come and make plans. We don't want to talk about that. We don't think about that. Making a will. We don't, we don't want to talk about that. But what we all know is there will be a day for all of us, just like Lazarus died here. In fact, look at the number on the screen. 637,330,986. You know what that is? That's how much time I've got left. It's going to be a long sermon. Actually, that's how many seconds I have left to live. There is a website called Death Clock. Look it up. I did. You type in your name when you're born, a couple other questions about yourself, boom. It tells you this is how much time. You, now, obviously they don't know exactly. 
But there was something about, because it started on my screen, and then it started counting down. That was Friday when I was finishing up the PowerPoint. I got less now. <laughs> that's uncomfortable to think about, because we don't want to think about that. But the Bible tells us that that is the truth. The clock is winding down. I also noticed on that website there was this link that you could click on and you could buy some life-extending vitamins. <laughs> I thought if you're eating those hot dogs, maybe you need those. But instead of finding a website that can just take your age and guess your life expectancy and put a clock on there, what if you want to know, what's my future? God, what's it for me? I'd like to know what you have in store for me. What if you clicked on the website and it said this? Never die. Wouldn't that be amazing? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There it is, folks. For those who believe in Jesus, this is the promise. Not long after saying this, Jesus would be arrested and beaten, nailed to the cross to carry the sin debt that you could not pay to take all of our sin upon himself to become our Savior. He'd be buried in a grave. Three days later, he'd walk out of his own grave carrying the keys of death to fulfill that statement saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He showed the whole world. You don't have to have a clock on the computer telling you how many days you have left to live. I don't want to beg. But I really, really, really want you to believe. That's why I preach. That's why I teach. It's what I do. I really want you to believe. But it's not just me. There's other people who are praying for you. That your heart would be opened. That you would believe. But more than that, Jesus wants you to believe. When he said to Martha, do you believe this? He wanted a yes. And he got a yes in Martha. She did believe. But Jesus won't beg you either. He's going to let you make your own choice. But he gave his life. So you would never die. Who's going to save me? Jesus is the only one who can answer that. And he does here in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Our song of invitation is to encourage you to express that you, like Martha, believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Confess that to those who will hear. Let him make you a new creation in baptism as he washes you clean and gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you, even if you die, you'll be made new again. You'll have eternal life. Or if we can pray for you in your faith, there's been those times where you have said to God, if you had only, that your faith would be strong and realize it's not about this side of the grave.
that you look forward to the day he calls you home. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?